following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. There are a lot of reasons, a lot, why there's so much false faith today. Uh, the Word of God is not taught as written. Uh, many churches really want attenders and not necessarily born-again Christians. Uh, there's not a lot of discipleship where people are actually called to follow the Lord's uh, words and to be obedient to all that Christ has taught. There's a lot of reasons, but I'm sure that you have come across a false faith at some point. You've talked to someone and you perceive this over multiple, multiple, multiple years of ministry. I've experienced quite a bit of false faith. There's, there's feely faith, people whose entire belief system is based on their emotions. If they feel good, then they think they're saved. If they don't, then they're not. There's doctrine faith, people who hold sound doctrine because they follow a church creed or a doctrinal statement, but they don't follow Christ. There's superstar faith, people who base their faith upon a man, a book, or you know some sort of school, but they're not born again. There's slogan faith. I met up with a lady who knew all the slogans, all the quick phrases that would define faith in Christianity, but she didn't know Christ. She just had slogans. There's family faith. There are Christians who are children and students who think they're saved because mom and dad are saved. There's uh, experiential faith, people who've had a religious experience, they walked an aisle, they signed a card, they were emotional, they were overwhelmed by their sin at some point, but they don't really follow Christ. There's church faith, people who think they're saved because they go to a Bible teaching church. Then there's false faith, those are people who say they love Christ, they say it, but they don't live for Christ at all. And then there's biblical faith, true faith. The genuine faith that saves, it's the faith that James is trying to tell us what it is, trying to describe it for us. He's, the whole epistle is really about genuine faith, that if you have genuine faith, you're able to respond to trials with joy. You're able to understand that it's your fault when you have temptation to sin, that we can live the Word of God and non-Christians can't. There's all kinds of descriptors of what real faith is, and now he's come to the apex of this letter at the you know, really end of chapter 2 to describe what genuine faith is. Now last week, if you were with us, he described in verses 14 to 20 of chapter 2, false faith. That's what those verses were all about, false faith. Empty faith, faith that doesn't save, faith that is not real, it's just a faith. And now today, in verses 21 to 26, he's going to talk about true faith. True faith, the real thing. True faith is the means of salvation. And true faith is what James has been trying to describe for us through the course of this entire letter. And again, he says to us in your outline there that true faith always involves the intellect. It involves the intellect. It's always based upon the truth of God's Word. He already taught us in James chapter 1, verse 18, that salvation is something that God brings about, that all true believers receive their spiritual rebirth through God's Word. That's James 1, 18. But then Romans 10, 17 agrees, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the what? The Word of Christ. So when faith is true... The intellect embraces the truth of God's Word, and the mind affirms the fact that Jesus Christ is God, and His work on the cross on our behalf is what provides salvation. In other words, you're not saved by a decision, you're not saved by an experience, you're not saved by a feeling, but you're saved upon the truth of God's Word as He reveals about who Christ is. True faith is an intellectual aspect to it. True faith also has a willful aspect to it. There in your outline, there's a volitional element to genuine faith. It's, it's more than just belief in truth. It is the surrender of your will. It is the submission of your life. It is the commitment of your soul. Now, you've heard me explain this before, so I'll do it one more time, just real basic for you. I believe, right now, as you're all sitting in the bleachers, I believe that this 
bleacher bench right down here. I believe that this bench will hold me. I do. I believe it. I really do. But unless I actually put my tush down on the bleacher, I don't have faith in this bleacher. Are you tracking with me? See, I understand. I can believe it till I'm blue in the face, but unless I sit in it, you're all waiting. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it, if it all collapsed, right? <laughs> right at this moment. I believe with all my heart. Here it is. Okay. I now put my faith in the bleacher because now I've committed myself by an act of the will to put my life in the bleacher's hands, so to speak. That's what it means to have faith. It is a willful element that you're surrendering yourself. It has an active element to it. He's saying faith without works is dead. There's an active element to faith. Last week, we learned that demons believe, and not only do they believe, but they are emotional. They're, they shudder. They're fearful of the truth of what they believe. They know it's true, and they're afraid of it, but they don't submit. They don't surrender as a way of life. And not only is it willful and intellectual, but there's an emotional element. It results in emotions. You'll experience the peace of God, the blessedness of the Lord, the love of Christ, and the settledness of purpose. The whole person plays a part in true saving faith in the New Testament. The mind understands the truth, the heart desires the truth, and the will acts upon and surrenders to the truth. Are you getting it? It's not just a mere intellectual belief, it is actually, I now put my life. You know, the, the basis of the Old Testament word for faith in the Old Testament was actually talking about the, the upper part of a doorway. And the upper part of the doorway is actually what bears the weight of everything in the whole, entire house above it. It's like a, 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 a truth-bearing wall, so to speak. It's, that's what, how faith is described, is that you're now putting your life, your weight on Christ. It's not just, oh yeah, yeah, I know he's the son of God. <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah, I know he died for my sin. No, it's like, my life is now banking on this. My life is now surrendered to that truth. That's faith. And that's the faith that James is talking about here. He's basically wants to describe true saving faith. And now he's going to do it in the latter part of chapter 2. Okay, the second part of this major paragraph with three examples. He's going to give you two Old Testament characters, and then he's going to give you one analogy, and it's basically going to be an amazing Sunday. Here we go. James chapter 2, verse 21. I want you to read this out loud with me. This is an amazing passage, so let's read it out loud. Ready? Here we go. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, as as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead." Now, before you freak out like Martin Luther did over these passages, understand James is not undermining salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He is not undermining that. And we know that for three reasons, and the reasons are this. One, James already taught us in James chapter 1, verse 18, that salvation is a gracious gift. Take a look at it, James 1, 18. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth... By the word of truth. He brought us forth means God caused us to be born again. By his word, he caused us to be born again. It's the gift of God. He's already taught us that in chapter one. And, and number two, in the middle of this passage, you say, wait a minute, he's not talking about salvation by works. How do we know that? Well, in the middle of this passage today, look at verse 23. James quotes Genesis 15, 6, which says that God credited righteousness to Abraham solely on the basis of his faith, not his works. In this passage, he tells you that salvation is by grace through faith. In this passage. So he's not talking about works. And then the very work that justifies Abraham in this passage of offering his son Isaac from Genesis 22, that event... That work 
that is basically being explained is 15 years after the Bible tells us that Abraham was, what? Credited righteousness. 15 years after he was saved. So he's not talking about the act of salvation. He's talking about the evidence of salvation. Are you getting it? The evidence. So what you have here in James chapter 2, 21 to 26, is the continuation of this teaching that faith without works is what? It's dead. Come on, say it. It's what? It's dead. In other words, faith, when it's genuine, manifests itself with works, outworking. James is teaching exactly the same as Paul. He's teaching exactly the same as the rest of the New Testament, that salvation is through faith alone, and true faith is always demonstrated by ongoing good works. Salvation is by faith alone, through faith alone, but it's always demonstrated by works. That's what he's trying to tell us. Now, you've read this a thousand times. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. You've read it. Put it together and let it say the same thing. What does it say? It says, for by grace you have been saved through what? Oh, come on, people. Participate with me today. I know it's cold. Warm up. Here we go. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Look, it's saying the same thing. It is salvation by grace through faith, and it will produce, when it's true, good works. A life change. Again, last week he told us, faith without works is, say it, dead. So number one in your outline, the deadliness of false faith. That was last week. And basically three things, very briefly, came out of this passage. Verses 14 to 20, James taught that false faith claims to have salvation. It says, and you've heard people do this, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but there's no evidence in their life. Verse 14. So they say it, but there's no evidence. False faith does not display any righteous or compassionate deeds. It does nothing, and that's verses 15 through 70. It just does nothing. There's no action. And then false faith embraces sound doctrine. It believes the truth. It believes that. But it's not repentant, doesn't submit to the truth, and that's verses 18 to 20. That was the deadliness that we looked at last week of false faith. They say things, they, they don't do really anything that manifests Christ, and they believe even really solid doctrine, but there's no change in behavior. So that's the deadliness of it. Well, then let's look at today the descriptions, point number two, of true faith. The descriptions. Now, James illustrates true faith, again, one more time, with three examples. As you read the scripture, you can see that here. Two well-known biblical characters, Abraham and Rahab. And then he draws a closing example from the body and the spirit. All of it to prove to you that real faith results in works. He's talking about true faith here. Both Abraham and Rahab are listed in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 as testimonies. All right, you know the big, you know, faith chapter, right? Hebrews 11 they're both in there, listed as those who have true faith that works. But why would he pick James? Why would James pick Abraham and Rahab? Why would he do that? Abraham's the father of the Hebrews, a man of power and respect, and the recipient of God's promises. Rahab is a Gentile prostitute, a woman of ill repute and a breaker of God's law. You know what's amazing? In selecting those two people... He's casting a very broad net that captures every single one of us in this room. Does he not? Yeah, every one of you here finds yourself somewhere between Abraham and Rahab. Every one of you. In other words, true faith is available to the best of you, and true faith is available to what? The worst of you. No matter who can respond to Christ in true faith. So he uses these two extreme examples to make a very strong statement. So what is true faith? Well, Abraham, first in your outline, is an example of true faith. The first example is Abraham, and we're going to break that down for us in verses 21 to 24. James is going to show now the contrast of false faith in the previous verses, now with true faith in these verses. So what does true faith look like? I'm so glad you asked. James says, look at Abraham, number one in your outline, the illustration of true faith. Now these all end with I-O-N. I don't know how that happened, but they do. All right, the illustration of true faith, and that's Abraham. Look what he begins with. 
he begins with this phrase, was not Abraham our what? Our father. Was not Abraham our father? And even though James is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, I don't believe he's talking about this racially but spiritually. You say, how do you know that? Well, the New Testament kind of refers that way too. Every single one of you in this room, Abraham's your father. Abraham's your father. You say, wait a minute. He's not my father. Well, take a look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 11. The father of all who believe. That's Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Those who are of faith are what? Sons of Abraham. So in James, Abraham here is an illustration of saving faith for both the Jew and the Gentile. And the Gentile. Now, you already know the high points of Abraham's life. I'm sure you remember Maybe you're new to the faith and don't know, but Abraham was anxious to have a son, to have an heir, to have his legacy continue, and so God promised Abraham he would have an heir, and Abraham believed God's promise, and in Genesis 15 and Romans 4, God gave Abraham the righteousness needed for salvation as a result of Abraham's faith in God's promise, in God's promises. In fact, in Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he believed in the Lord, Abraham did, And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now you understand, right? Everybody here understand that you are not righteous before God. Can I hear an amen? You are not righteous before God. Therefore, for you to be in God's presence now, and for you to be in God's presence in heaven, you have to be covered with his righteousness But you'll never be perfect enough to earn that. So what God did is he said, I'll take the punishment for your sin upon myself. Your sin falls on Christ. And my righteousness, when it's true, when he justifies you, will cover you. And that's what he's saying here in Genesis 15, is that God, on the basis of Abraham's faith and belief in his word, covered him in his righteousness, meaning that he was saved. He was righteous before God. So Abraham is saved by true faith that later was proven by works. That's number two in your outline, the expression of true faith, the expression of true faith, which is works. Now, verse 21 makes a phrase, okay, take a look at it, justified by works. Was not Abraham, verse 21, justified by, what's it say? Oh, come on, one more time. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by? Now, if you have any sense of sound doctrine... Any sense of the New Testament, that phrase should make you squirm and or call out heresy right now. Yeah, you should be freaking out, all right? Uh, You know, Paul teaches we're justified by faith, and James says we're justified by works. Now, is James denying the heart of the gospel? Is James disagreeing with Paul? What's the answer? No. Now, let me give you the reasons. Historically, they're in your notes. In Acts 15... James fully supported Paul's preaching of salvation by grace through faith at the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts 21, James defended Paul's reputation among the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament do you see James and Paul in conflict, historically. They just weren't. There was no wrangling over the core essentials of the gospel. On the contrary, historically, they were always in support of one another. So that's historically. Biblically, there are two different nuances for the word justify. You want to circle that word justify... But understand, the Greek verb can either mean to declare righteous as a legal proceeding, and that word justify can mean to demonstrate righteousness. Paul uses justify most often to declare righteous as a legal proceeding between God and us. James here is using justify to demonstrate righteousness. Are you getting the difference? To demonstrate it or prove righteous. You are declared righteous when you are saved by grace through faith. You're declared righteous. And when you are genuinely saved and have true faith, are you ready? You will demonstrate righteousness. Are you getting it? You're declared righteousness at salvation, and when that faith is true, you will demonstrate righteousness. And that's what James is highlighting here. When he says that Abraham was justified by works... He's telling us that Abraham demonstrated his righteousness, proving he was saved by grace through true faith. Now, theologically, when Paul says you are justified by faith, he's looking at the root 
of salvation. You might want to write that down. The root of salvation, at the moment you are saved by grace through faith plus nothing, basically, that's the root of salvation. On the other side of the coin, James here is looking at the fruit of salvation, all right? After salvation, after the root of faith is planted in you, your life will bear fruit of good works. Did you get that? Once God saves you and basically you have true faith planted in you, you will bear the fruit of good works. Paul looks at justified as a part of the doctrine of salvation, and James looks at justify as a part of the doctrine of sanctification. Are you getting it? Two different perspectives there. In fact, I made up a word, perspectively, okay? Perspectively, James and Paul are looking at the gospel from different viewpoints, different viewpoints, Paul looks at life from a divine perspective. You're justified by faith before a holy God, right? James looks at life from a human perspective. You're justified by works before men. People see it. It's demonstrated. So James is addressing believers who've already experienced the free gift of salvation. So he uses the word justify to mean to demonstrate myself to be righteous in the sight of people to prove that I have received God's free gift of righteousness, that I was given saving faith. When I'm giving saving faith, it will what? Be demonstrated. That's when he says justified by works. It's demonstrating righteousness. It's living out righteousness. Now, I modified and adjusted Swindoll's chart of comparing Paul and James. Take a look at it there. Basically, a couple points I want to highlight. He uses justified to declare righteous. Paul does. James uses justified to mean demonstrate righteousness. Paul emphasizes the root of salvation, the very act of salvation, and James is emphasizing the fruit or the outbearing of salvation. So two different emphases. Now, do you need to be justified, yes or no? Wait, 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 wait. That person that's sitting next to you, do they need to be justified? Can I hear yes or no? Yeah, yeah. And some of you, you're looking at somebody next to you, you go, they really, really need to be justified. See, why do you need to be justified? Why do you need justification? Why do you need it? Because every one of you here and myself at the top of the list has lied, lusted, been angry, selfish, proud, defiant, disobedient. And that was just this morning. Not only violated most of God's perfect law, but all have fallen short of God's perfect character. Would you agree with that? And our sin has defiled you and I so deeply, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do, that I can do, in our own power, in our own selves, to make ourselves right or acceptable before a holy God. We can't do it. That's the message of the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it starts with very bad news. It starts with very, and you don't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news. And the bad news is, is we have no hope. We are helpless and hopeless sinners before a holy God. We desperately need to be made right, to be justified before God. We will not stand before his judgment. We will all fall short of his glory, and therefore, we're in big trouble. We need justification. Well, the good news is, is that God chose to do that on his own for us. Out of mercy, out of love, he justified you. He can do that. Wearsby says, quote, justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous on the basis of what? That sinner's work? No, on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. It's not a process, it's an act. God does it. It's not something you do, it's something that God does for the sinner when we trust Christ. And make no mistake, salvation has always, always been and always will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You say, what about the Old Testament? Yeah, they were looking ahead for Christ. And by the way, we're looking back to Christ, right? It's all a matter of perspective, but understand, you have to be justified. So how can you tell if a person is justified by faith? Well, if this transaction that God does takes place between the sinner and God privately, 
Well, James shows us how, with the life of Abraham, thirdly, the action of true faith. The action of true faith. Sacrifice. What does Abraham do to show us? Well, he's justified by his works. Verse 21, when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Abraham's example answers the important question, how can we know it's true justification? How do you know? Wait. How do you know it's true salvation? How do you know you're really saved? How do you know you have true faith? The justified person will manifest it by a changed life. A changed life. They obey God's word. They want God's will. His faith will be demonstrated by works. His faith is proven by works. And this is what Abraham did when he sacrificed his son Isaac. Fifteen years after Abraham was given righteousness by faith, God tested his faith. Fifteen years after Abraham was converted, after he became a believer by faith, God tested Abraham. Abraham already had faith in God, therefore he wasn't afraid to actually obey the Lord in a very, very difficult test found in Genesis 22. Now you might want to spin over there and hold your place here in James. This test is big. This test is big. Abraham sacrificing Isaac threatened to break God's promise to Abraham to birth a great nation to reach the nations, all right? Plus, this command contradicts God's law against murder, human sacrifice. So in spite of that, Abraham fully trusted God. Genesis 22, verse 3, if you're there, without questioning, without wavering, it says, Abraham rose early in the morning and went to a place which God had told him. Now, we don't know what went through Abraham's mind we don't know what went through Isaac's mind. I mean, you know, if I was Isaac, I'd be going, why are you carrying that big knife there, Dad? You know, what's this all about? All right? We don't know that. We don't know. But we are told that the young men who were with them were told this in verse 5. Stay here, Abraham said, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and then we will return to you. Abraham believed that both of them would return alive. Now imagine your faith being tested like this that you are to sacrifice your firstborn child. This is incredible. God took Abraham to the point where the blade is about to go in, all right, and stopped him of his only begotten son, the one who he delights in, the only one that's linked to all the promises. Take a look at how it's described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that and God that was able to raise people even from the dead. Even though no one had yet sacrificed a person for God to, to then raise him up from the dead, Abraham believed that God could resurrect Isaac. That's what Hebrews tells us. Abraham believed that the character of God, that God would never violate his divine promise, and that Abraham would not violate his law. And as a result, true faith was proven, number four, the verification of true faith. The verification of true faith. Verse 22, James continues to explain the nature of true faith. You see that faith was working in his works. Uh, you see that verse 22 says, his faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was, what's it say? Perfected. Perfected. It is not that salvation requires faith plus works, but that works are the outgrowth and completion of genuine faith. Now, verse 22, perfected. You see that word there? Circle it. It refers to bringing something to its end. It refers to uh, bringing something to its fullness. You know when you have a fruit tree? Anybody got fruit tree in your backyard? Fruit tree, fruit tree people? All five of you. That's wonderful. Thank you. All right, so you got a fruit tree in your backyard. It really isn't complete. It really doesn't fulfill its purpose until it what? Bears fruit. That's what he's saying here. It's the same way as with a fruit tree. And unless you, as a Christian, okay, bear fruit, you haven't actually completed your purpose. You're here to produce fruit. Jesus even said in Matthew 7.20, you will know them by their, say it, fruits. Bearing fruit is not a function that you add to the plant. You know, you don't tie the apple onto the tree. It comes out of the tree. That's part of its design and its purpose. John MacArthur states it this way. Even before it's planted, a seed 
contains all the genetic structure for the producing of its own kind of fruit. When a person is born again through saving faith and is given a new nature by God internally, you have the genetic structure, as it were, for producing moral and spiritual good fruits, good works. In that sense, your faith, verse 22, is perfected. In that sense, Abraham was justified by his works. It was demonstrated that he had real faith. It came out in fruit. His willingness to sacrifice Isaac, to obey God to that degree, was the work which basically proved that he was saved, proved that he was born again, proved that he was already made righteous. It showed his true faith, the true faith that God teaches in Scripture, which is number five in your outline, the authentication of true faith, the authentication of true faith. Scripture. James quotes Genesis chapter 15. Now what's going on in Genesis 15? All right, so understand this. They know this. Abraham in Genesis 15 has just won a resounding victory over the kings of the east. He's rescued Lot from slavery. Great story. He met with Melchizedek. Uh, He's learned a new name for God. He's refused all dealings with the king of Sodom. And then Lot and his family left. You know what happened? As soon as Lot and his family left, two things happened. One was, finally, Abraham obeyed the original call. The original call was, leave your family, leave your friends, and go to this promised land. And he took Lot with him. So when they separated, there was a manifestation of obedience there. But also, when Lot left, took all his kids with him, you know, the sound of kids was gone. There's no child, you know, uh, chatter going on. And Abraham felt his own childlessness, and more keenly. And so at this point, God enlarges his promise. God pointed Abraham to the stars, and he said, Abraham, count them. Because that's how many your, inher- inherent, you know, your, your descendants will be. And, and at this point, Moses tells us that verse 23 comes into play, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as what? Say it out loud. Righteousness. That's the crucial truth of imputed righteousness. God giving you his righteousness. And James says the Bible teaches a salvation by faith alone. And Abraham believed God and he was made righteous. In the great argument of the book of Romans, Romans is asking the question, wait a minute, is is it always salvation by grace through faith? Is it always that way? And he goes right to Abraham in in Romans chapter 4 and says, yes, it's always been that way. So that leads us to faith changed Abraham so much that number six, the affection of true faith. The affection of true faith. Intimacy with God. In verse 23, describes Abraham's sweet relationship and it says at the end of verse 23, what's it? That he is called the... He's what? The friend of God. Oh, come on. He's called the... Are you the friend of God? Abraham was God's friend. And don't you love it? When you read Genesis, uh, God stopped by to chat every once in a while. Isn't that funny? That's how it worked out in Genesis. But don't miss also the connection of the phrase friend of God to the context here. Because his faith was genuine. It was proven by works. And verse 23 says, Abraham entered into an intimate relationship with the Lord. In fact, the Greek verb called a friend is God calling Abraham a friend, not Abraham calling God his friend. And the basis of their divine relationship, are you ready, was Abraham's obedience, his justification by works brought about this intimacy. Now wait, some of you are missing the point. Don't miss this point. You cannot be friends if you don't agree, if you're chafing, if you're defiant. If you're disobedient, you can't be friends, right? If you don't head in the same direction, you can't be friends with somebody. You can't defer to, you, you got to defer to each other. You, 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 gotta, you, you have to remain faithful and obedient. You can't remain disobedient and unfaithful. And Jesus made this really clear in John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I, what? Command you. It was Abraham's obedience, the expression of true faith, which cultivated an intimate friendship. Are you getting that? Understand, you know this is true. If your friend is constantly at odds with you, you are not friends anymore. Are you getting it? Let me put it to you this way. Write this down. Those who feel far from God are the disobedient. Those who feel far from God are the disobedient. You were meant to be intimate. You were saved so that you can 
personally know Christ, so be obedient. And as a Christian, you are designed to be able to say, Jesus Christ, personal friend of mine. You were designed that way. Look at John 17, 3. You know this. This is eternal life that they may, what? Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Regeneration creates faith, and true faith always produces intimacy until you're at odds with that person. Until you're disobedient to that person. Which leads to, number seven, the summation of true faith, evidenced by works. Look at verse 24. That's the summary of this particular description of Abraham. And it says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, James is using, again, justified to mean demonstrate righteousness, not declared righteous. It was Abraham's works that proved his faith was true. Now, here's the question. Do you profess Christ with your lips, but deny Christ with your life? Do you profess Christ with your lips, but deny him with your life? Now, is that important? Yeah. In fact, Paul said it this way in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they what? Oh, come on. Come on, everybody. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they? In fact, it's so intense in Titus that true faith will show itself by being an example of good deeds, to be engaged in good deeds, and actually to be zealous for good deeds. The whole point is that your faith will manifest itself. James does not allow works to be a means of salvation, but he insists that works is a proof of salvation. It's not a means of salvation, it's a proof. So be encouraged, friends. Abraham was not a perfect man, right? Nor were his works perfect, his faith was not perfect, but the overall pattern of his life that he manifested good works, even his willingness to sacrifice his own son, he was validated as having saving faith. And MacArthur says this, when a man is justified before God, he will always prove that he is justification, that justification before other men. A man who has been declared and made righteous will live righteously. Imputed righteousness will manifest practical righteousness. In the words of John Calvin, one more time, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never what? Alone. So that's Abraham. That was the illustration. Then he jumps to Rahab. Rahab. Let's talk about Rahab for a minute. She's an example of true faith. Now, why does James choose to use Rahab as an example? Well, not just the fact that all of us are included, but John Calvin says this, quote, in order to show more clearly that no one, whatever his condition, whatever his nation, whatever his class in society, has ever been counted righteous without good works. Without good works. He's saying it's universal for everybody. Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, Rahab was a Gentile. She's a prostitute. Abraham was a moral man. She was an immoral woman. He was a noble Chaldean. She was a degraded Canaanite. Uh, he was a great leader. She was a common citizen. He's at the top of his social economic order, and she was at the very bottom. What does James say? Look at verse 25. Take a look at it. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by, say it, works, again, demonstrating works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, she's a pagan prostitute living in a big, incredible city that is doomed called Jericho. Now, if you've ever been there, it's a large tell. There, you know what a tell is? Everybody know what a tell is? A tell's a big pile of dirt. It's an ancient city that's been covered over with dirt. Well, the biggest tell that I, I you know, one of the biggest tells in Israel is Jericho. And they've excavated it. It was, a, it, was a, it was a big city. It was the entrance city to that region. And, and here she is living in this city, Jericho. And Rahab is without God, without Christ, without hope. And she's under the sentence of death because God's going to destroy Jericho, right? Right? So then came two Hebrew spies. And even under the threat of torture and death, Rahab seized her one chance of salvation. You say, what are you saying? Listen, the people who betray their city or their nation they get the worst kind of punishment. Are you with me on that? that even in ancient times, even that's true today, those who are, betray you know, their people. And Rahab believed in the one true God. She already understood that. And she showed her faith by protecting the, the Joshua's men here. In Joshua 2, it tells us that Rahab was the innkeeper. In Jericho, 
She was one where those spies were into Jericho to spy it out. Her inn was the logical place to go because it was at the city wall. Didn't require them venturing too deeply into the city. And the king of Jericho heard that the presence of these men, and he sent military police, the Gestapo, to Rahab's house to arrest them. But Rahab falsely reported, and she basically said, hey, they just left, and they're headed out, and if you hurry, you'll catch them. And she what? She lied, okay? She lied. Big moral dilemma. People have uh, divided churches over this thing, so don't you do that, all right? Understand, she demonstrated her faith by hiding these two men, preserving them. On her roof, after the officials left, she expressed her faith that was demonstrated toward these men. Now, she did lie. Lying is called sin, all right? Don't debate it. It happened. James doesn't comment. One commentator that I read who said, wartime ethics are different. Oh, brother. Okay. (laughs) Another said, her lying was sinful. She had been raised in a debauched pagan society that the Lord was about to destroy where lying and all sorts of gross sin were the norm. All right? True. She blew it. But when she had the opportunity to demonstrate her trust in the Lord, she placed her life on the line. See what she says in Joshua chapter 2. I put the passage there so you at least read it. Let me summarize it for you. Rahab says the exploits of Israel's God shattering the power of Egypt is well known. Right, sometimes we think nobody else knew about that. Oh, they all knew about it. They all knew what happened in Egypt. And the miracles that followed you Israelites as you traveled from place to place in the wilderness over the past 40 years were not done in secret. And the recent destruction of the Canaanite kings that you've already warred with and had victory over brought fear of Israel's God upon all the people of Jericho. She's saying all this, but here's the difference. Are you ready? Hang on. Grab that bench. Only Rahab did something about it. They all knew it, but no one did anything except for Rahab. That's the point. You see the strength of this point? She demonstrated her faith in the one true God. She proved it. She not only had faith, but she acted on that faith. Her faith worked. She says, I'm going to do something about this. Listen, I can't tell you the number of people who hear the gospel and don't do a thing. And they even get worked up over it. They get emotional like demons do, but they don't submit to it. And the point that James is saying is, it's not just faith that you believe in, but your volitional element is, you have to act upon it. Faith without works is? It's dead. It's not faith. It's not saving you. It's not going to do anything for you. Listen, you can believe in Jesus till you're blue in the face, but until you surrender your life to Him and say, it is no longer my life, but your life, I act on that in that faith. You are not saved. Are you getting it? You see, Chris, you're worked up over this. Yes! Because heaven and hell is at stake. Do you get it? That's how important this is. Well, she pled with these men, and basically she said she helped them out of her house. She t- they, t- they told her what to do, her faith. You know, she says, your Lord, your God, he's in heaven. Uh, he's the God of heaven above and earth below. She's really affirming who he is. And basically, she let them escape over the wall in a scarlet rope, and that rope became her promise of salvation. She was to bind it on the window of her house as a sign to Israel. And when Jer- um, Jericho fell, that rope basically left her house standing. She was spared, and she was justified you know, not only by her faith, but it was demonstrated by her works. And just as Abraham and every other believer imputed righteousness is based on faith, resulted in practical righteousness reflected in good works. Are you getting it? James now finally gives his final point, and that's third in your outline, the third evidence, the third example of true faith. The body and the spirit is an example of true faith. The body and the spirit, all right? James does kind of reversal here to summarize the entire paragraph of, on false faith and true faith. And basically, he's taken this whole argument that we looked at that last week and this week, and he basically ends the paragraph with verse 26, which clarifies false faith, is also reveals itself. You say, how does it? Verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is what? Dead. So also faith without works is dead. J- James likens dead faith to a dead body. And he says, if you have professed faith without works, you say with your lips you have faith, but you show with your life you don't have faith, 
then James likens that false faith to a body without a spirit. It is useless. It is devoid of any genuine life. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but my brother, uh, the doctor, who is a morbid guy, had me check out dead bodies that he worked on at medical school over there in Irvine. Uh, He was at UCI for a while. He forced me to go into the room that had 12 dead bodies in it. You ever been in a room with 12 dead bodies? Kind of a weird experience, except if you're a doctor. And understand, they're working with these cadavers, so to speak, and he uncovers his cadaver. It's all been put back together. They kind of disassemble and reassemble bodies. It's, it's, it's what medical students do. All right, so he goes, Chris, touch the body. I'm like, me no touchy. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 touch the body. I go, ah, no, I'm not going to touch the body. Touch the body. So I go, And as soon as I did that, that body spoke up to me and said, stop poking me. (laughs) No, it didn't do anything, did it? It just laid there. Why? Because nobody home. The separation between the immaterial part and the material part has already taken place. So there's no one home. There's no, I could dress that body up. I could take it to dinner. I could talk to that body all night long. I'd probably get arrested. But understand... (laughs) That there's going to be no response because the immaterial part of that body has been separated. That's death. Death means separation. It means the immaterial you is separated from the material you. That's what death is. And my friends, your faith, your Christian life, if it doesn't live out ongoing works, ongoing works, it is just as dead as the Spirit of God that indwells that. I mean, the Spirit of God does not indwell that kind of fake believer. It's just as dead as that dead body. A real belief behaves. All true faith works. All genuine Christians do good deeds, and those who don't are as spiritually dead as someone whose spirit has left their body. Let's take this home. Are you ready? Letter A. The general direction of a true Christian's life will demonstrate good works. The general direction. No professing Christian's faith is true unless there is genuine faith that moves them to action. Each person who has been made righteous will live righteously. They'll live righteously. John Calvin, again, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Is your Christian faith true faith? Is it saving faith? Then here's the question. Where are the works to prove it? Not that you add that in, but it comes out of you. Just like a seed has all the genetic ability to produce fruit, you want to produce fruit. You will produce fruit. You just add it in. You say, I want to do this. Letter B. True Christians will choose Christ over their deepest idols. Say, why do you bring this up? Well, because there was a little bit of idolatry going on in these examples. And what you've got, it could be for you, what's your idol? An an idol, it could be entertainment, your phone, your kids, your money, your spouse, your health, your friends, your ministry, your work, your pleasure, your escape. With Abraham, what was his idol? Isaac. All the promises in Isaac. Uh, Rahab, it could have been her life or her family. When your faith is true, you'll be pressed with trials and tested with temptations, and it'll ultimately cause you to have to deal with your idol. You say, what's an idol? It's anything that competes with Christ. It's something with a deep affection that competes for Christ. Attention and heart. And listen, if your children are your idol, you're not going to sacrifice your children. But if you're a Christian, you're going to probably surrender them in your heart. You won't burn your clothes, but you'll probably stop spending so much money on them. Uh, you may not give up all sports, but you'll stop watching them 24-7. You'll not throw your phone away, but you'll stop looking at it between every discussion and dialogue. You'll not quit your job, but you'll stop making it your identity. Because your identity is in Christ. When you have genuine faith, Abraham and Rahab show us they, they'll, they'll give up anything in order to obey their God, especially when your biggest idols exposed. Will you? There's an idolatry issue here. Letter C, be encouraged by the imperfect examples of faith. Is anybody here perfect? Please don't raise your hand. Rahab was a prostitute and she lied about the spies. Abraham tried to fulfill God's promise his way. He committed adultery. He birthed a child who would oppose the nation of Israel for centuries. We're still battling with that issue. And understand, Abraham also lied twice, not once, twice, about his beautiful wife being his sister. 
There's no excuse for sin, but are you not encouraged by the fact that our examples of faith are really imperfect? Come on, can I hear an amen to that? Yeah, both Rahab and Abraham are examples of faith to us. God does not expect perfection, but proof of faith. God does not expect greatness, but just good works from faith. And letter D, no one can be saved apart from true faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you listen? Here it is. This is a sobering reality. All who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be saved. But God loves us so much, He tells you and I, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Would you bow your heads with me and let's do that right now. Let me ask you some questions as your heads are down and eyes are closed. Was there a time when you honestly realized you were a sinner? That you're God's enemy? That you came to a place where you hated your sin and you desperately wanted to be free of sin? Did you admit to God, yourself, and even to others? Do you you truly understand the gospel that God alone saves sinners, that Christ is God in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for your sins, rose again? Did you confess that you cannot save yourself? Have you come to the point where you sincerely repented of your sins, you turn from them, and you depend in faith in Christ alone? That you surrender your life to Him, you exchange all that you are for all that He is? And have you submitted to Christ and follow Him now as your Master And do you enjoy living in an intimate relationship with Him or you're His friend? Do you love Him and know Him and follow Him? Has there been a change in your life? Listen, all of us, we have so many friends of ours and family members who, who have a false faith. Father, we pray that You would work in our lives and Father, You'd work in the lives of those we love and know with a false faith so that they might understand the true gospel and might surrender to you for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.